Hi, I'm Rabbi Ami Hirsch, and you're listening to In These Times. Today you're going to hear a legendary story of Jewish resistance. He sought passage to Israel and he paid the price. Years of hard labor in a Soviet prison. But prison only hardened his resolve to reach the Jewish state. As part of a prisoner exchange in 1986, he crossed the Glinicky Bridge from East Berlin to West Germany and freedom. He made Aliyah immediately and became a high-ranking minister in several Israeli governments. A soaring symbol for human rights, his work was recognized with Israel's highest award, the Israel Prize. And he's one of only four non-American citizens to have received both the Congressional Gold Medal of Honor and the Presidential Medal of Freedom, along with Mother Teresa, Nelson Mandela, and Pope John Paul II. He's brilliant, but humble. He's funny. He's a chess prodigy. And today, he is our honored guest. Natan Sharansky, welcome to In These Times. Thank you, Rabbi, for inviting me. I'm glad to talk to you. I think the first thing I'd like to do is uh, we have a lot of listeners of uh, different ages in uh, the podcast. There are uh, many, many listeners who can't forget that amazing image of you on the bridge uh, upon release in uh, Berlin. Uh, and then there are uh, many, many, many Jews who weren't even born at that time and uh, don't uh, really know about the Soviet Union at all, let alone the fight for uh, Zionism that uh, you led in the... Soviet dissident movement. Can you tell us uh, a little bit about uh, your background, your youth? I was born in Ukraine, in Donbass, in Donetsk, what is really the heart of the battle uh, these days between Russia and Ukraine. Or it is the, all those places of my youth are today the victims of this barbaric aggression uh, of Putin's government. In those days when I was growing there, Nobody could imagine that there'll be war between Russia and Ukraine. And there were more than 100 nationalities living there, but only one word mattered, Jew, because it, if it is written Jew, the idea of your parents, then you have problems, and then you face anti-Semitism in the street and also anti-Semitism in the discriminatory policy of the government. And at the same time, there was nothing positive in this word Jew, because we had no tradition, no language, no brit milah, no bar mitzvah, no knowledge about all these things because we were victims of this policy of the forced assimilation by Soviet uh, leaders. So that's how we grew without freedom and without identity. Uh, and it continued like this until 1967 when with this miraculous victory of Israel, over a humiliation for Soviet Union, which spent a lot of efforts and money and weapons to guarantee the victory of Israel's enemies. And then suddenly the world changes. Everybody looks at you and says, how you Jews did it? And you understand that uh, for all the world, Jew is something connected very closely to Israel. And that's how you discover your identity. And that's what gives you strength to fight for your freedom, for freedom of the other Jews, and then for freedom in general. 
And before 1967, did you know anything about Judaism? Did you think about Israel at all? Or it was the Six-Day War that that essentially was the catalyst for you? I would say that we had to think a lot about discrimination of Jews, because you, otherwise said there was nothing positive in it, but it, it was some, nothing that you can run away from this. It's as if you were born with some kind of disease, which is called Jew, and that's why you have to work much harder than others for guaranteeing your career. When you began to be a Jewish activist and a Zionist activist, did you realize that you were risking so much at, at the time, or did one thing build on another? When was the moment that you decided, you know what, I'm going to risk everything for this? In the very beginning, when I had to make the first step to stop being loyal Soviet citizen, to stop this double life, this life of lies, and to say that I don't want to belong to this country, I want to go to Israel, even that moment before I did it, I was told that you will spend nine years in very tough conditions prison, You'll be threatened many times, be killed. Nobody can guarantee you that you will survive. But you finally started speaking your mind freely. And that's such a huge change going from being loyal Soviet slave to being free person. And this connection with your people and the tradition, with the history, with the faith, and with Israel that it's part of this newly discovered freedom. It's such a great change that you don't really want to go back. So when even in prison, you're reminded again and again that you'll be sentenced to death if you will not condemn Israel and condemn Zionism and condemn dissidents, you know that in fact what they want, they want you again to go back to this life of lies, to become a slave. I was given the choice. I, I had life without freedom and identity, and then I got the life of freedom and identity together. You don't want to choose. You simply take your freedom and go ahead with this. So you're brought up on charges. I think it was treason. Yeah, it was called treason. And you were sentenced to 13 years. You eventually served nine years. And... Uh, you're a chess prodigy, you're an intellectual, you're a deep reader. How did you survive in prison? What, what was it like, looking back on it? What characteristics were in you that allowed you to prevail? Well, first of all, you have always to remember why you are there. You have to remind yourself every day that you are in the middle of huge historical struggle. Interesting, exciting, important. And the life of millions depends on the results of the struggle. And you're in the middle of it. That's why when you say no to KGB and you have to say no to KGB each day, it's so important to remind yourself when you're for years in solitary confinement, 405 days, you're in a punishing cell. Very tough, cold, hungry, dark place. So you have to remember that even here in this dark place, you're the center of the struggle that Israel, Jewish people, your wife, of course, they are all together with you. That's first. Second, you have to, on one hand, being very serious about all this. You should never lose your capability to laugh at the absurdity of this regime, of the craziness of the system. I love to tell anti-Soviet 
jokes to my interrogators and later to my prison guards because they were wonderful, great anti-Soviet jokes about the leaders of Soviet Union, and they cannot even laugh. They are ex <laughs> almost exploding from their desire to laugh, but they cannot. <laughs> it was the end of their career. They have to shout at you, how dare you? And, so, <laughs> and you say to them, you see, you cannot even laugh when you want to laugh. And you want to tell me that I'm in prison, you're in prison. So, of course, I did it to irritate them, and they tried to irritate me. But the, mainly I wanted to remind to myself that I stay a free person even here. When you were in the Soviet Union, you allied with uh, human rights dissidents as, as well. I assume that you saw a connection between Zionism and between the specific fight for the liberation of the Jewish people and the overall fight for the liberation of humanity at large. Do you believe that Zionism at its core is a human rights, civil rights, liberation movement? Of course, well, I went through this. It is Zionism which helped me to discover what fr real freedom is. But before I was a Zionist, I was a loyal Soviet citizen whose only value was career. It was told by our parents to us, because you're a Jew, you have to be the best in your professional career. There is no other way of survival. And the life was very non-exciting, very non-interesting. And then it is Zionism which gave me pride for being Jewish, which gave me desire to fight for my freedom. And as a result, you start fighting also for freedom of the others. I was an activist and later spokesman of two movements simultaneously, the Zionist movement and the human rights movement. And when I was told on two sides, I heard, you have to choose. Are you Zionist or you are universalist? Are you concerned only about your tribe or are you concerned about the future of the world? I felt it's absolutely wrong even to ask me to choose because without your identity, your life will be very decadent, very shallow, very weak. But without your freedom, without your readiness to speak about the suffering of the others, your freedom will not be real. It was clear to me that these two things are deeply connected. I think that's so important, and it's something that all Jews, especially younger Jews, should really take to heart, Natan, that the cause of Zionism is a universal cause at one and the same time, that the Jewish nation is a nation that doesn't look only inward, but looks outward to be a blessing to all the families of the earth. You were born in uh, eastern Ukraine, the very heart of the uh, war between uh, Russia and Ukraine. You met both uh, Putin and Zelensky, you, you're one of the few people in the world who've actually done that. Can you just give us an overview? What's going on in Ukraine? What, what, what are the Russians thinking? What is Putin thinking? I was born there. I lived there. I was arrested in Moscow. I dealt a lot with Aliyah from Russia and Ukraine as the head of Jewish agency. I met Putin in, in the first years of his presidency, discussing Iran on one hand and the Jewish communities on the other. And I met Zelensky in the last couple of years as the head of the project of Babi Yar, and we had many meetings and conversations with him. I have to tell that this conflict, this awful conflict, is not about Jews. Putin, and I can say only very bad things about Putin in these days, 
no doubt that it is a threat to all the free world, his dictatorship. Uh, but Putin is the first leader in the history of Russia, probably, who has a very positive attitude to his personal attitude towards Jews. And Islam for him is a Jewish-Russian-speaking state. So it, he has sympathetic view. And Ukraine is led by a Jew who is openly Jewish, who is proudly Jewish, who, at least until this war, uh, found, uh, had a very big admiration of Israel. Now he has problems with the so-called neutrality of some of our Israeli leaders. This conflict is not about Jews. This conflict is desire of Putin, who decided that he is the strongest politician in the world because he is eternal. He's not for three, four, eight years. He is forever. And his desire to fulfill his historic mission, as he believes, to restore Russian empire. And that's why he uh, brought back parts of Georgia, then Chechnya and Belarus. But the biggest challenge for him is how to bring back Ukraine to, as he believes, the place where it belongs, the Russian empire. He is ready to challenge all the principles on which the free world is built. And he has unbelievable cruel invasion in Ukraine. And it is very important for us, which is for Israel, to understand that it's not struggle for a piece of land between Russia and Ukraine. That's the struggle whether the free world will succeed to continue living in security based on these organizations and principles which it created in the last 75 uh, years. If the stakes are so high, if it's really a struggle between the rules, the post-war rules and the demarcation between uh, liberalism and democracy and something else that that Putin wants to uh, encroach upon. If the stakes are that high, do you think that the West, NATO, should put boots on the ground? Do you think they should intervene more than what they're doing? They're doing a lot. They're supplying whatever they can up to their own red line. But do you think the red line should be further, that NATO should intervene? Yes, yeah, so the free world does a lot. Let's say the free world does more than Putin hoped much more. But free world, at the same time, free world is frightened. Putin was wrong about Ukraine and its readiness as a nation to resist. He was wrong about readiness of the West to put the sanctions. But he was right in one thing, that if he will threaten strong enough, the world will be paralyzed, or at least partially paralyzed. And he threatened the world with the nuclear weapons and the world was paralyzed. And Putin is not a great politician. He is not a political thinker. He is not a great uh, military thinker. But he is the real leader of the criminal world. In the criminal world, the one who is the leader is not the one who is the strongest, but the one who is ready. Everybody understands he is ready at any moment to take his knife, to use his fists, to use his teeth, uh, to cut your throat. So the sooner the free world shows him that we are ready to fight no less than you are, the better the chances there'll be no war. I read that you wrote somewhere or said something that uh, during uh, your time in prison, what you learned is that the strongest criminal is not necessarily the one who's most physically strong, but the one who's most willing to use his knife. 
and not on a knife. Sometimes he has to use his hands, his teeth, but then everybody is scared. They're afraid that simply by his anger, he'll cut my throat. And that's exactly what makes uh, him so strong. And at the same time, we have to say he's not Ayatollah from Iran who is looking for the benefits, privileges in the next world. He is interested to be in this world, the leader of Russia, until the end of his days. So to think that he is going to go to commit suicide and to go to the nuclear war, I don't think so. But to use the threat of this war, he's ready as long as he sees that this threat works. So let me ask you, since you mentioned the Ayatollahs, what do you think about the uh, JCPOA, the uh, Iran deal? Is it good for America? Is it good for the West? Is it good for Israel? For sure, it is very bad for Israel. And uh, as a result, I doubt it can be good for the free world. And I'll give you one reason. I want to put aside uh, all these debates about how Iran uh, uh, will quicker come to the nuclear weapons. I don't, though I was involved in all these negotiations even 20 years ago with Putin, I don't feel myself special in this. But I do know that the only way to decrease the danger of Iranian terror is to keep sanctions in place. The moment the free world agrees to give him or to release hundreds of billions of dollars, many of these billions of dollars go straight to terrorist activity against us and against the free world. And in 2014, in the previous round of side agreements, I wrote article after article in the American press reminding how the West knew to link negotiations with the Soviet Union to the question of the behavior of the Soviet Union. In order that the Soviet Union even will start these negotiations, it had to change its rhetoric from world communist revolution to peaceful coexistence, not speaking about to sign the agreements. And here, Iran keeps saying that their aim is to destroy Israel. So how it is that the free world is ready to sign such important uh, critical agreements without putting any link to Iranian behavior, to Iranian support of terror. And just when the world is taking such huge effort to take hundreds of billions from Putin, they are ready at the same time to give these hundreds of billions to Iran and straight for the global terrorist activity. So your argument is, even if Iran abides by all of the terms of limiting nuclear production and stays away from the production of a bomb, doesn't cheat, it's still a bad deal because of the hundreds of billions of dollars that they'll use to foment uh, disaster and catastrophe in the Middle East and around the world. It's not accidental that now fighting with Putin, the world understands that it has to strengthen the sanctions against Putin. We have really to weaken him economically. I have no doubt that uh, whether with agreement or without agreement, in the end, Israel will have, Israel and uh, hopefully with the support of rebuild, will have to deal with this threat military. Uh, but the question is whether we will have to deal with this military when Iran is empowered by hundreds of billions of dollars and has the army of terror all over the world, or we'll have to deal with the Iran, which is strictly restricted, uh, or by agreements or, or physically. 
you were uh, chairman of the Jewish Agency. What do you think about the Israeli policy with respect to Ukrainians? Are you completely supportive or uh, do you have some criticism about it? And why is this important to Israel? Why is it important to world Jewry, this struggle? My criticism to Israel is almost the same as my criticism to, to the Western leaders who were very cautious from the beginning. Though Israel has its own explanation that we unfortunately are dependent on Putin when we are taking the Iranian bases in Syria. But even with all these pragmatical interests, we have to understand that the struggle for the future of free world. And we are part of the free world. And we Jews want to continue living in freedom. And it's not accidental that just now, not only Aliyah from Ukraine grows, but Aliyah from uh, Moscow is increasing much quicker because Jews are afraid not to be part of the free world. The Jews are shocked by the fact that Iron Curtain can be resumed so quickly, that the, the laws which don't permit them to think freely and to speak freely their mind are suddenly implemented. So, yeah, Jews want to be part of the free world. And this is critical struggle, not for the peace of land and not even for the rights of Jewish community in Ukraine or in Russia. It's the critical struggle, whether this free world as it is and where Israel is important part of it will exist or not. You put together what we call the Kotel Agreement, the agreement of uh, egalitarian worship space at the uh, Western Wall. It's actually at the Southern Wall, what's called Robinson's Arch. It was agreed upon by everybody, really, by the entire uh, spectrum of uh, the Jewish community by American Jews and uh, diaspora Jews. You worked on it. I assume that many of the ideas uh, were yours, but the Prime Minister uh, Netanyahu, he proposed it. It was his agreement and he received the support of uh, the then Israeli government. Uh, and while the Jewish Agency Board of Governors is in Israel on those very days, he announces that uh, he is pulling back his uh, support for this agreement, and he no longer supports the agreement, which opened up a substantial crisis between Israel and the Jews of the world that is still open and is unresolved and still festers. What do you think? Were you disappointed? It was your agreement. You helped to put the whole thing together. And where do you think we're going now? Well, of course, I, I was and I am deeply, deeply disappointed and not because it was my agreement. I would say, frankly, it's no less, it's, it might be even much more Bibi's agreement than mine. It was his idea, but he asked me uh, that he cannot stand any more these awful wars near the hotel. He told me this phrase, which I took as a slogan, one wall for one people. Look at the head of Jewish agency. Can you bring all the sides uh, together? And I was very proud when I go to New York, speaking to all the streams to everybody, and then coming to Bibi and saying, that is initial conditions on which we can start negotiations. Do you agree to accept in advance that there will be the initial agreements? And he said, yes. And then in five years or the number of times, in the critical moment, he agreed to convene all the sides in his office and was coming sometimes with very creative, sometimes impossible ideas. They were too liberal, but... No doubt that the authority of prime minister helped a lot us to all those who were involved in the leaders of reform and conservative and uh, rabbi of the court and everybody who was involved gave us opportunity to come with this agreement. Some 
People said that they will never vote for this, but they can live with this. And then the government voted for this agreement. Politics came into existence. At the moment, Prime Minister understood that he can lose the government. He said, I have to freeze it. So I have to say why for me it was such a big disappointment. Because I am feeling from my Soviet jury struggle days, the power of this connection with all the Jews of the world and the fact that Israel has and is the home for every Jew in the world. And that's why it is very important that every Jew will have a place. And as a result, we have a, a long debate who is a Jew, how we make your conversion, whether the government should finance non-Orthodox streams or not. There is a lot of ideology, which is very difficult to overcome. But I thought and hoped that there is one issue which is not ideological, one world for one people. What it means that we want the average Jew here, it means that he or she can come to the most important religious, but also nationally, place in the world, Kotel, and pray in his or her own way, together with their rabbis, with their synagogues, how to make sure that it doesn't undermine the others, doesn't undermine what already exists, doesn't undermine the fact that chief rabbinate is the orthodox rabbinate. And the fact that we came to such a compromise gave me hope that we can start with this to dismantling all the tensions which exist between so many Jews in the world who don't belong to orthodox streams and uh, the state of Israel. And I was hopeful. Unfortunately, we, probably we need another and another round of the political changes in Israel. But I'm sure that it will happen then because, after all, everybody in Israel wants that Israel will be home for all the Jews of the world. And there is no way to do it in the end without giving a place to these different people who are expressing their belonging to Judaism in different ways. That's an optimistic uh, note. Sooner or later, it will happen, although it still may uh, take some time. And I would say to all the non-Orthodox Jews, the liberal Jews who are online with us, we need to keep the fight going, keep the pressure on, and uh, sooner or later, there'll be uh, results. You still play chess? Yes, well, I have time, but this time I don't need to do it in my mind. Thanks to the computer, internet, any moment you can find somebody of your level somewhere in the world at place. So sometimes I play it. Yeah. And by the way, as a result, I have scientific research how COVID is influencing on your mind. First time when I had COVID, the Delta COVID, which was very weakening, my efficiency in chess went 10% slower. So you could see it physically. And then it takes months to restore yourself. On so many levels, you're on such a high level that even a reduction of 10% is not noticeable to the uh, average Well, yeah, don't, don't build too many hopes here. But, uh, <laughs> but <laughs> I take it personal, yes. I have to restore myself. And who knows, now we have a good uh, explanation. Well, it is difficult for you to recognize that with the age, you're becoming weaker intellectual. So you say, oh, it's all because of COVID. <laughs> I will recover one day. <laughs> Natan Todaba, I enjoyed uh, spending time with you. I want to thank you very much, and on behalf of all of the listeners here, thank you very much. Thank you. 
I'll never forget that image of Natan Sharansky crossing the Glienicke Bridge separating East Berlin from West Berlin. He looked strong, even after nine years of unjust and cruel imprisonment by the Soviets. He looked excited and determined to get to Israel. Those of you who are not yet born or do not remember that day, go online and read about it. Look at the pictures of Sharansky crossing the bridge. It was an historic moment, portending the day when the entire Soviet Jewish community would one day cross the bridge, separating the East from the West. Sharansky conveyed many important ideas in our conversation. Let me emphasize two. First, he said that Zionism is at one and the same a movement for Jewish liberation as well as a universal cause. He said that his closest allies in the Soviet Union were human rights dissidents. This is the soul of Zionism. Through the liberation of the Jewish people, we seek to facilitate the liberation of all people, including the Palestinian people. The Jewish people's purpose is to represent universal moral values. At no time in our history was what we call tikkun olam, the universal demand to do what is just and right, ripped from the moorings of Klal Yisrael, the centrality of Jewish peoplehood. It was never one or the other. Loyalty to the Jewish people, absent concern for all the families of the earth, is a distortion of Judaism. And tikkun olam, the repair of the world, divorced from Jewish peoplehood, is not Jewish universalism, it's just universalism. The second point is that Sharansky mentioned that Soviet anti-Zionism was a form of anti-Semitism. So today, anti-Zionism is often a form of anti-Semitism. Not always. After all, there are plenty of anti-Zionist Jews. However, the extent and the manner of the single-minded, blind obsession with Israel often bleeds into hatred of Jews and normalizes Jew hatred. Of course, not all criticism of Israel is illegitimate or unwarranted, and certainly not anti-Semitic, but some of it is. And in some places, such as college campuses and online forums, a lot of it is. All of us, especially younger Jews, those who are listening who don't remember who might not have even been born during the Soviet Jewry struggle? You need to feel anti-Semitism. We need to learn to appreciate subtlety, nuance, and context to develop the capacity to distinguish between legitimate critique and the new mutated form of anti-Semitism dressed up in the garments of pathological anti-Zionism. Natan Sharansky is a role model and an example of how to fight back. He's one of the great heroes of our people. Till next time, this is In These Times.